0: This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Hey everybody, it's Jessica. I'm so happy to say we're rejoined again by Lawrence Hurley. He covers the Supreme Court for NBC News. For almost a decade, he had a similar role at Reuters where he was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. Today, I'm gonna talk to Lawrence about big Trump-related cases pending before the Supreme Court. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for passing judgment again. I'm excited to talk to you about the big Supreme Court legal news of the last month. For sure. So I wanna focus our conversation today on whether or not the former president will be disqualified from the ballot under section three of the 14th amendment, and then go to a different case that the Supreme Court may or may not consider involving whether or not the former president is immune from criminal prosecution for acts he took while he was president. And I know that you were actually in the courtroom for oral arguments last week, February 8th, regarding whether or not under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, again, the former president can't be president again. So could you lay out for us briefly what the issue is. Why would Section 3 mean that Trump can't be president again?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated case on a sort of um, slightly and slightly unprecedented because the court hasn't really wrestled with this issue before. But basically, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that uh, a former government official who'd previously taken an oath to the Constitution uh, and who then engages in insurrection is barred from a holding office. Um, and of course that raises a lot of questions as to what exactly is an insurrection, and uh, this was the uh, subject of of last week's hearing, although they didn't actually really talk much about uh, <laughs> what an insurrection is because there's a lot of these kind of procedural questions that, before you even get to the question of whether Donald Trump himself can be barred from office, which is what the plaintiffs are suggesting in this case, in Colorado, trying to bar him from the, from appearing on the ballot. But, of course, the, the ultimate aim is to stop him from uh, taking office. And, you know, th- there's not much history of this provision being enforced. Um, and, you know, there's lots of questions there about who decides whether to enforce it, how you enforce it, uh, what an insurrection is. Did Donald Trump actually engage in insurrection on January 6th when, when his uh, supporters attacked the Capitol? Uh, and all kinds of issues like that. Um, So that's what the justices were talking about at that hearing last week.
0: So as you said, lots of big and small questions when it comes to this case. As I view it, there's kind of three steps for disqualification under Section 3, which you just outlined. Step one is you have to be a certain type of former official. Step two is you have to engage in insurrection. And then step three is you have to be trying to be another type of official again. And I heard the arguments focus basically on two issues as you said not a lot of conversation about was there an insurrection not a lot of conversation about the specifics of how it's enforced but in my mind i thought it all focused on this question of does section 3 even apply to people who were previously the president and two can states really make this decision? And I think there's a lot of things that fall under that second umbrella. Can states be the one to make this decision? But could we focus in first on that first bucket? What was the argument here for why Section 3, which again, put into the Constitution after the Civil War, aimed at making sure that those who fought for the Confederacy couldn't once again serve in government, why wouldn't that apply to people who previously were president?
1: Yeah, this is where it gets into a very wonky reading, a kind of close reading of the of the Constitution, different parts of the Constitution that refer to what constitutes an officer of the United States, and uh, uh, the the um, section three of the Fourteenth Amendment, which is the provision here, refers to. Various offices, specific offices, including senator and member of the House, doesn't actually specifically mention the president, but it does mention officers of the United States. And so, one of the questions in the case is: Is the president an officer of the United States? And um, there were some arguments about that. Although, you know, like a lot of the the argument, it didn't really go the way that, especially the plaintiffs uh, in this case would have wanted, um, because even some of the liberal justices were raising some questions that were sort of somewhat friendly to Trump's position, including Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, one of the Democratic appointees, saying, um, well, you know, when they when the 14th Amendment was written, you know, maybe they weren't thinking of the presidency uh, when they put this language in because, you know, after the Civil War, there wasn't really a concern about the president being an insurrectionist. Um the concern was kind of lower officials uh, getting in back into the federal government in confederate states um uh, or not just the federal government but in state government as well um and so maybe you know she was kind of suggesting maybe the the president wasn't supposed to be under this but so that was you know uh, one of the the thrusts of of trump's arguments is is that he's just not covered at all and although to me it didn't really seem like that's where the courts going to go with its ultimate decision, or we can talk a bit more about that.
0: I thought originally, I was listening from a studio, I heard Justice Jackson start to say, but isn't this really not about barring somebody who serves as president from once again serving? And as you said, she talked about this really being targeted at making sure that state and local officials from the South couldn't rise again and serve in government. I thought, here we go. It's a narrow path. If liberal Justice Jackson, who was appointed by President Biden, is the one most vigorously making this argument. Here's our nine to zero decision. As you said, I think that kind of fell apart, maybe is too strong, but I no longer think that's where the decision is going. You were in the room. Why did you have that sense?
1: Well, I think because there were a lot of questions. I mean, obviously, you know, you can never tell 100% from oral argument what the court's going to do. But when, you know, several justices kind of coalesce around the same kind of uh, arguments, you know, you can get some kind of sense. And uh, it seemed like a lot of the questions were going to this issue of who who, who gets to enforce this provision, you know, and is it self-executing or does there need to be some kind of congressional action uh, to implement it and there were quite a lot of questions about that and this all goes back to you know some l- cases right after the 14th amendment was enacted uh, this case called the griffins case that was decided by chief justice uh, simon chase and uh, you know that got mentioned in the argument and um you know J- justice Kavanaugh was talking about that but then so it was just you know justice kagan was also talking about Uh, self-executing so it kind of seems like they kind of feel like it probably isn't self-executing and there needs to be some legislation uh, especially in relation to the presidency uh, if not to state officials and you know just this idea that like one state in this case Colorado could uh, get the ball rolling and basically say this person can't run for president and then you know, what happens then? Like uh, with other states, uh, do they defer to the fact finding that the Colorado court did or do they all have to do their own kind of court proceedings and then kind of decide whether or not there was an insurrection? It just kind of uh, seemed to the, the vibe in the room was that that's a recipe for chaos.
0: I also heard them have extreme anxiety about allowing one state to make this decision. And I think you laid out the reasons why. I was kind of envisioning it as this umbrella fear of, can we allow a single state to make this decision for, again, a national election? You pointed out, maybe just for the presidency. And then within that fear, I saw them honing in on that specific issue that you mentioned, whether or not Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, by which we mean, can states act or do you first need Congress to act by legislation to basically, in my view, give guidance to the courts and say, or give guidance to states and say, here's when you can act and here's how you can act. Was there another way that this fear of one state acting alone seemed to manifest? Or was it kind of a straight line from you can't have Colorado or really any other state make this decision for the rest of the nation and therefore is the only next stop because you need legislation? Or is there another option there?
1: Well, I think just to go back to the concerns that they have, I mean, one of them is, I think it was the Chief Justice, uh, John Roberts, who said this was, you know, okay, well, this is going to lead to, you know, Republicans trying to kick Democrats off the ballot as well. Um, If you don't have any clear rules for how to decide, you know, what an insurrection is, uh, there was already um, at least one Republican who's suggested that uh, Biden be kicked off the ballot because of his handling of the Southern border situation and claiming that that kind of is, he's basically aiding and abetting a, a foreign invasion. And so that counts as uh, would some kind of somehow counts as insurrection. So, um, you know, and you could see how this would have kind of open the door to, to that type of thing. And th- this idea that like, uh, just because it's Donald Trump, you know, you need to look not just at Donald Trump, but how, it, how this plays out when the person involved isn't Donald Trump, uh, which is what's something the court has to consider. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the, this idea that there needs to be congressional action did seem to me to be the the main easy way out, as it were, if they're trying to avoid getting into this question of, you know, the actual merits of whether Donald Trump actually did engage in insurrection, uh, and whether he should be kicked off the ballot. It's, it's kind of like, you know, if Congress wants to do something, they can do something. That's the kind of one of the favorite things the Supreme Court likes to say.
0: Right. Not It's not us. It's actually a different branch that first needs to act, and then you can come back to us. I also thought there was an interesting question about timing kind of going the other way. So in the sense that the first question, I think, under this fear of you can't have one state act, is do you need congressional legislation authorizing states to act or providing them guidance about when they can act? But then there was this other conversation I hope you can tease out for us a little bit about whether or not Colorado jumped the gun, not because there isn't currently legislation to give them guidance, but because Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says Congress can vote by two thirds of both houses to remove the disability, and meaning to say, even if you were disqualified, now you no longer are. Was that for you a key part of the arguments?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think what you're getting at is this idea that the Fourteenth Amendment refers to you know holding office or taking office or whatever, as opposed to running for office, Um, and so there's a question as to whether you know where the rubber hits the road is not here when, you know, you're in the primary or whatever, but after the election. um, And then you have to go through a proceeding then, uh, which of course, if the court kind of uh, kicks out this lawsuit, it doesn't mean that that couldn't come up again uh, after the election this year. um, Because, you know, there could be a whole new uh, effort to 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 keep trump from taking office if he actually wins um and i think that's why some people are saying you know that in itself is a recipe for chaos um so it gets starts to get a bit kind of theoretical because you know obviously there's a lot of things that have to happen before we get to that point but uh and and you know there's no Who knows what Congress would do? Uh, Congress could do a lot of things. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think the the court, I don't know, the court usually tries to avoid messy situations. So I think whatever they do, they'll just be trying to kind of, it seems like they're going to try to just make this go away.
0: So can you clarify that point a little bit about this idea of them potentially kicking the can down the road in the sense that there are, are some routes that they could take in their ruling that would basically just postpone this decision, in my view. And I think you laid it out, but I've gotten questions about this, and I'm hoping maybe you can repeat, what exactly could the court say that would just essentially delay this question that would mean that if Trump does win, then we're going to have the conversation about disqualification all over again?
1: well i think if they go down this road of saying that congress has to do something then i guess it sort of leaves it up to congress again right because they could say congress could then after the election uh but before you know obviously before certification because that's not what this would be about necessarily uh but <laughs> but they would ha- be able to then do something i guess that would say that he he is un- not eligible to actually hold the office of president or allow that process to to carry out, but I mean, of course, the the moment Congress is uh, the house is controlled by Republicans, so I mean, there's all, zero chance of that actually happening. You know, <laughs> you could see all kinds of ways that that could be a mess. So um, I'm not exactly sure if in practice that would actually happen. But the court might sort of say something about leaving options open without actually, you know, assuming that that's actually going to
0: happen. And as you said, like it's a fantasy world. I think in which Congress votes by two thirds of both houses to do anything. Did the court acknowledge that? Does that play into its decision at all?
1: I don't think the court basically ever acknowledges the reality that Congress uh, can't do anything. There's all kinds of rulings we could talk about where they've sort of assumed, well, Congress can do this and Congress can do that, and in theory they can. But you know, um, in the current environment it almost never happens.
0: CEG voting rights. (laughs) I mean, lots of conversations about, well, Congress can just, and then fill in the blank. Now, I'm wondering what you think might have been missed by people like me who followed along at home or and just listened or read coverage. What is something that you felt in the courtroom that maybe the rest of us might have missed? Did it seem like, this is just a case where, and this is a slightly separate question, but it, does it seem like this is a case where they all know where they want to go? The question is just which off-ramp and what the vote is going to be?
1: Well, I think one interesting thing about it was that, of um, course, Trump was not in the room, uh, which he has been at a lot of other court proceedings recently. Uh, and I think, you know, that says something about the way that this case was heard, because it it, it didn't feel like a circus It didn't feel like, you know, a sort of cable TV kind of uh, thing. It was more like a dry academic discussion about this obscure provision of the 14th Amendment, which I think is exactly how Trump's lawyers wanted it to be um, because it it kind of takes all the sting out of it or the kind of uh, emotional side of it out out of it, Uh, which um, a lot of these Trump cases, you know, people get very excited about including trump himself uh and uh this one it just seemed like the tone was pretty uh, academic and that kind of was how the argument went and it just seemed like they weren't really wrestling with the practical implications there's all the political implications but we're treating it more like this kind of dry exercise which doesn't really have any practical implications because they're going to shut it down you know, that's kind of what it seems like they're going to do.
0: It's interesting. On the one hand, it was this academic exercise. But then on the other hand, as you said, they are worried about the consequences because we heard from Justice Kagan, from others. What would happen if we allow one state to make this decision? So do you have predictions about which route the court's going to take? It sounds like you think they're going to go down the Congress needs to act first path. And, Do we think maybe we could get a unanimous decision? Yeah,
1: I think it seemed to me like they maybe would go with the the idea that Congress has to take action before this can be implemented, and that would basically, for now at least, kind of you know the Colorado case would be over, and um, you know states would be sort of prevented from really doing anything. That's probably the way they want it to be. I mean, it's sort of business as usual. Status quo remains the same um, and, uh, you know, whatever consequences there might be that I guess they'll deal with down the road.
0: Well, and I think that probably brings us to the next big topic that I wanted to talk to you about Lawrence, which is some, a case that's not yet pending before the court. This is just a case where Donald Trump has asked The court to get involved. And we're talking about this question as to whether or not a former president has immunity from criminal prosecution based on actions he took while in office. And of course, we're talking about whether or not the federal election interference case in the District of Columbia can proceed against him. Now, we know that a three judge panel of the DC Circuit ruled in a 57 page opinion essentially kneecapping all of Trump's arguments, in my view, and saying there is no absolute immunity. They said the separation of powers would collapse if there were absolute immunity. And I think during those oral arguments before the D.C. Circuit, you really did see Trump's arguments start to crater. And I'm wondering if first you could just lay out very briefly, what were the main arguments here. I know there was an argument focusing on the separation of powers. There was another argument focusing on the impeachment clause. What do you want people to know about why Trump is claiming this broad immunity?
1: Well, I mean, Trump uh, um, has is making these broad immunity arguments, not just in criminal cases, but in civil cases, too. Um, and he basically, you know, it's his get out of jail free card, basically. Um uh, for all and everything that uh, happened while he was in office, whether or not, you know, you can argue whether or not it was actually to do with whether you know his actual official role as president or not, which uh, is a key issue in this case about January, you know, this is again, again, is about January the 6th and whether Trump can be um, prosecuted for his actions, uh, seeking to overturn the election results, questioning the election results, and then encouraging his supporters to try to prevent the transfer of power, basically, which is what the, how the prosecutors put it, you know, the, the, the issue of what the Supreme court's going to do is a very tricky one because it's not just about the legal question, but it's really also about timing and also, you know, about the, how the justice department normally handles politically kind of, uh, hot button prosecutions and how they're not really supposed to take into account elections, but of course they are because they're trying to get this to trial before the election. Um, So there's a lot of tricky issues for the court to handle. um, And, you know, and not just, you know, this request that Trump filed is about trying to stay the mandate of the DC circuit opinion, which just means trying to prevent that ruling from going into effect, uh, which would allow the trial to go ahead. But of course, the court has other options because it could actually agree to hear the case on the merits and decide this issue of immunity. And, you know, that, of course, would be, um, you know, a a big deal because they would be deciding on this question for the first time ever, but also, you know, it adds to the delay. So at the moment, we're waiting to see if the court is going to step in quickly or whether it's going to kind of Slow walk this, um, and that—that's almost as important as what they actually do.
0: Exactly. I mean, timing matters here because, of course, we know that Trump wants to delay, delay, delay all these cases. If he can win, then he would direct his attorney general to dismiss at least the federal cases pending against him, and/or if that, for some reason, doesn't work, attempt to pardon himself, which, of course, has never been done before. And again, the. Court, I think, is looking at in this particular case questions about whether or not you can prosecute a former president for quote official acts that he took while in office, and whether or not you first have to be impeached uh, and or convicted before there is a criminal case pending against a former president. Just to get back to the substance of the arguments here, were there a few moments in the D.C. Circuit oral arguments or opinion that you think were just fatal to Trump's position? <laughs> uh,
1: well, I mean, the, the, the moment that, you know, became the sort of headline w- was probably when one of the judges asked Trump's lawyer, you know, could, a, could the president order the uh, Navy SEALs to assassinate a political rival? And um, because that would be, you know, he'd be uh, acting in his role as commander in chief uh, of the military and making this order. You know, Trump's lawyer basically said that would be okay. So um, I think, you know, there's lots of kind of nightmare scenarios that you can draw out if you say, can you, you know, if Trump could do what he did um, on January 6th uh, and not face criminal liability for it can you know you can think of all kinds of other things that presidents could do that uh kind of questionably within their bounds of their actual jobs titles um uh, that could also evade uh, prosecution i I think one of the interesting things is also this this debate about official acts because there's obviously not much precedent on any any of this stuff but that there is this supreme court ruling in the civil context that, that sort of it's talked about a president being not being liable uh, for actions taken place as president that were in the kind of outer bounds of his official duties. Uh, but that's sort of as, as much as we have on that. And, and the the DC circuit didn't, didn't really decide that issue in this criminal case, because they basically s- assume for the purposes of that decision that it was an official act and said that it wasn't protected. Um, but that's sort of in... You know, there's there's also this other D.C. Circuit ruling in the civil context in which Trump got sued over January 6 uh, actions. And the court there said the, the case could go ahead as well, but on different grounds where they said that it wasn't an official act to try and uh, overturn the election results. Uh, instead, that was Trump acting in his role as a candidate for office and has nothing to do with um, his official acts. So, and then then interestingly, you know, Trump is also appealing that case to the Supreme Court. And so the court's going to be wrestling with these kind of official acts questions, uh, both in the civil and criminal context in the next few weeks. So that's going to be interesting to see.
0: Well, as you said, the D.C. Circuit essentially accepted for the sake of argument, let's say that Trump in his efforts to overturn the election, the specific allegations in this criminal complaint, let's say they were official acts. Here are the reasons why you don't still have criminal immunity, absolute immunity from criminal prosecution. And they did kind of contrast that case. You're talking about Nixon versus Fitzgerald, where the court said, you know, when when it comes to civil suits on official acts, presidents have absolute immunity. But I think they did highlight why civil suits and criminal suits are not similarly situated. And I think you were exactly right to highlight that we might still have this question of, did Trump engage in official acts or not? And of course, that's pending, as you highlight in, in a separate case. Now, maybe to end where we began, the Supreme Court, you think, will consider this case. And what does that mean for the timeline of the trial pending against Trump?
1: Well, it sort of depends what the court does um, if they deny trump 's emergency application, then you know the case goes back to the district court, and the trial can move forward. If they grant it and just say nothing else, um, sort of indefinite delay is imposed, and we don 't know how long that would last, uh, presumably, so Trump can further litigate this issue on immunity. Not just at the Supreme Court, but also in the appeals court, because he said he wants to ask for a rehearing. So that could, you know, drag on for quite a long time. Uh, and then the other option is the court could actually sort of not really decide whether it's granting Trump's request, uh, necessarily, but just say that we're going to hear this case on the merits and in other words they'll construe the emergency application as a petition for cert in the uh, terminology of the court and uh, agree to hear the case on the merits which means hearing oral arguments and you know issuing a, a ruling kind of like they're doing in the 14th amendment case and uh, you know that could depending on how they write the order that sets out the briefing schedule and so on uh, that could also happen quickly W- and, or soon enough that the trial could still happen before the election in his filing jack smith the special counsel he, you know he obviously told the court not to grant trump's request but his sort of backup argument is that yes you should grant the case uh take it up like i, I just described uh, and maybe hear oral arguments as soon as march um i.e next month and then issue a ruling after that so that could you know I mean, who knows? (laughs) The court can do whatever it wants. Uh, They could um, decide it within a few weeks, or they could decide it within a few months. Um, And, you know, all of that has a big impact on when the trial, if if it takes place at all, is going to happen.
0: Lots of different forks in the road. Lawrence, thank you for breaking all of this down for us. Thanks for talking about the two, I think, biggest issues kind of pending and absolutely pending before the court when it comes to the former president
1: no worries i think uh, being a supreme court reporter now is basically being a trump reporter so we're all getting used to that
0: for how long we don't know um well lawrence thank you again for your time
1: no worries thanks a lot